What's up, y'all? Welcome back to Critical Mass Podcast, the podcast brought to you by the Center for Social Impact at UVU. I'm Hannah, and I'm this year's host. Now, in physics, the term critical mass refers to the minimum amount of material needed to spark a chemical reaction. In social impact language, we use the term critical mass to talk about the minimum number of people we need in order to create social change or even like the initial protest or event that sparks a social movement. Now, this year, the pod is going to be spotlighting student activists, organizers, and advocates. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about queer student activists and local organizing that's been going on recently here in Utah Valley. Quick note about the term queer. Historically, it's been used pretty brutally as a slur against LGBTQ plus people. And some older folk might still take offense to that term because of that nasty history. But eventually, it was adopted by the community as a friendly umbrella term. And that's the way we're going to be using it here is like in the reclamative sense. Couple little disclaimers before the good bits of the pod. Any opinions expressed by our interviewees don't necessarily reflect the opinions or values of the Center for Social Impact or of UVU. Also, the intent of this episode is only to highlight queer student organizing in Utah Valley, not to debate whether queer individuals deserve the same civil rights as any other demographic. Moreover, we'd like to clarify that while mentions of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will come up throughout today's episode, we recognize that the actions of one university or one queerphobic student are not necessarily representative of the entire church or all of its members. Now, there's two big universities down here in Utah Valley, both huge and both with pretty different reputations. One of them is Brigham Young University, or BYU, and it's down in Provo, Utah. It's a private school that's got about 35,000 students, an estimated 6,500 of which are queer. Something important about BYU is that it's affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Due to this religious affiliation, students have to abide by something called an honor code. The honor code is a set of standards students and faculty at BYU got to live by in order to attend or be employed. The honor code is regulated by the honor code office, but BYU got a whole system where students can report one another for violations of the honor code, and these violations can result in disciplinary action, including expulsion. Included in the honor code up until recently was an explicit section banning, quote, homosexual behavior, and even after that wording was removed, BYU officials clarified that such behavior is, quote, not compatible with the principles included in the honor code, meaning that any sort of, quote, queer behavior is still banned and can get students expelled. Now, in 2021, the president of BYU, Kevin J. Worthen, wrote a letter to the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, calling BYU a, quote, religious institution of higher education founded, supported, and guided by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and asking if the school could get a religious-based Title IX exemption. Now, Title IX is a federal civil rights law that prohibits sex-based discrimination in any school or education program that receives funding from the federal government. And since BYU is a private school that receives most of its funding from the church, it qualifies for that exemption and is allowed to prohibit queer behavior behavior on and off campus and even to mandate that students, quote, participate regularly in church services. Just 10 minutes north of BYU is Utah Valley University, or UVU, which is the university that houses this podcast. UVU is a public university in Orem, Utah, with about 40,000 students, and of those 40,000, an estimated 7,000 are queer. It's the largest public university in the state with a lot of non-traditional students, like students that are also single parents, first generation, or attending only online. Now, something that UVU likes to say a lot around here is, UVU, a place for you. And that slogan describes UVU's official inclusive policies. UVU doesn't have an honor code banning queer behavior, and there's even a few clubs and programs on campus that support queer students. But queer phobia is not entirely absent from UVU, and there are a few key moments that have historically clashed with student activists fighting for queer rights. Okay, just to clarify, queer phobia is a broader term than homophobia or transphobia, and it's the term we'll be using in this podcast in order to refer to the systems of oppression queer people face, whether that be through homophobic policies, transphobic exclusion, or any other system of oppression meant to marginalize queer people. Queer phobia at BYU and UVU didn't come from nowhere, so if we're trying to understand current issues, we got to take a look at their histories of systemic queer oppression, the consequences of those queer phobic acts, the response of student and community activists, and the impact of that activism on policy and culture today. 
The history of queer acceptance or lack thereof at BYU is pretty severe. While BYU's queer phobia can be traced way back to its founding, it's really in the 1970s that BYU's queer phobia turns violent and explicit. In 1976, a graduate student by the name of Max Ford McBride used electroshock aversion therapy on 14 gay students at BYU. Now, technically, participation in the study was voluntary, but at an institution where social acceptance, scholarships, and housing are all contingent on being straight, there are substantial power dynamics that explain why students might agree to participate. Now, this so-called therapy was meant to, quote, cure gay men by making them associate homosexuality with pain delivered by electric shocks whenever participants would experience homosexual arousal, as though queerness is kind of something that could be trained out of a person or ignored until it goes away. Trauma caused by that study caused two of the 14 participants to commit suicide out of guilt that they didn't, quote unquote, get better, as well as lifelong mental and emotional health issues for the remaining survivors. In response to the suicides of his two friends, a man named Stephen Zacharias organized a group called Affirmation, an affinity and support group for queer Mormons in an attempt to stop such tragedies from happening again. Now, Affirmation helped to organize Utah's first Pride event in the 90s, and it's still around to this day to support queer Mormons. Electroshock therapy has been banned officially at BYU, but they still appear to categorize LGBTQ plus identities as a behavior that students can just choose not to engage in. Any queer or romantic behavior, from sex to just hands-holding, even off-campus, is technically a violation of the honor code and can result in expulsion and other disciplinary action. So while explicit practices have been banned, queer students currently or formerly enrolled at BYU still report feelings of shame, depression, or suicidal thoughts. While we were doing the research for this episode of the pod, one of our researchers, Danny, told me that she used to be a student at BYU-Idaho and BYU-Provo, but decided to leave both institutions due to issues with queer exclusion policies. So we brought her on to speak a bit more about her experience as a queer student at BYU. Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so happy that we could get like a familiar face to come on um, and, and talk a little bit about what you and I have already been discussing while we researched. Um, why don't you introduce yourself and then give a little bit of background about your experience at BYU? For sure. Uh, so my name's Danny. I'm a senior at UVU. I use she, her pronouns. I actually started at BYU-Idaho um, right after high school. I then went on a full-time mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I went to South Carolina and then I went back to BYU-Idaho, and then I ended up transferring out of BYU-Idaho to BYU-Provo. So I've experienced two out of three of the BYUs, the uh, less cool ones. <laughs> Didn't get to go to Hawaii, but I initially transferred from BYU to BYU-Provo because I found the, the culture there to be very toxic to me specifically as a queer person. And I was hoping that going to Provo, things would be a little bit different, mm. that I would be able to find a little bit more community, a little bit more acceptance. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, I found many of the same problems at BYU-Provo that I ran into at Idaho. Did you know that you were queer when you applied to both schools? This may sound funny, but that's actually kind of a hard question to answer. Okay. Um, I first started to realize I was attracted to women when I was like 13 or 14, um, but I, when I brought this up with my parents and church leaders, um, and peers, I was told that this was a inclination or a behavior that I could choose to engage in or not engage in. And so because it felt like a choice, I chose to not pursue women, to not act on my attraction to women. Um, and so I didn't think of myself as a queer person when mm. I 
uh, applied to BYU-Idaho. And when I went there and when I went on my mission, I knew still in the back of my mind that I did have that attraction to women, but it didn't really feel relevant, which is, Mm. which seems so strange to say now. Um, So despite knowing that I was attracted to women, I did not identify necessarily as queer and it didn't even factor in to the choices that I made to go to BYU-Idaho and on a mission. And even though I knew I was attracted to women, I didn't realize that I was a lesbian and that that was something that was unchangeable about me. There are plenty of students who apply to an institution or who apply to BYU and don't find out that they're queer for years. They're, mm. They think they're straight. And so, and may even agree fully. I know I agreed with the honor code. I am someone who, um, for my whole life, I supported um, defining marriage legally as between a man and a woman. I mean, up until not that long ago, honestly. And so I went to BYU fully supporting the honor code, fully supporting um, this idea that marriage should be only between, be between a man and a woman. Um, but things changed. Things changed drastically for me. Things have changed for other students as well as they grew up and got to know themselves and realized their queer identities, which sometimes can happen in your senior year and at BYU. And if you come out as queer in your senior year and get yourself a same-sex partner, you can have that degree that you've worked so hard for for four years taken away just like that. And I think that people need to keep that in mind when they say queer people should just not apply. I was still under the impression that I was not a queer person, just that I struggled with queerness. Mm. And then if I left the more sort of intense BYU-Idaho and came to the more metropolitan BYU-Provo, that that pressure would be alleviated. So my own acceptance of my queerness really couldn't happen until after I left BYU-Provo. which I I ended up leaving because that pressure only seemed to intensify with time as I got older and as it became more and more apparent that I would never be able to marry a man, Mm -hmm. let alone a LDS man and marry in a temple. I knew that um, it just wasn't going to happen and that was devastating for me. And so I left BYU Provo and sort of grappled with that on my own. And it wasn't for months, maybe even I still feel like I'm on that journey of accepting my own queerness, even years mm. later after I've left. Okay, that, that kind of leads into my next question of like, what was queer community like at BYU, and how how did like having to hide queerness at BYU um, influence the culture of that community? For me, the culture of queerness was knowing looks between students. Um, it was. A shared interest that happened to relate to queerness in a very tertiary manner, like maybe saying that a character from a TV show who was queer was your favorite character. (laughs) And that would kind of be the extent of uh, talking about it Mm. explicitly, for me at least. I know things have changed a little bit. I left BYU in uh, 2015. And so it seems that there's been kind of a a resurgence uh, of queer community there that I 
I didn't get to see. Mm. But there were queer people at BYU when I was there. And we found each other um, through mostly uh, U.S. I think it's called USGA. It's the unofficial um, queer club at BYU. They're not actually allowed to meet on campus. So they, mm. when I was there, they met at the library. Um, and we only had one or two meetings, I think. Um, and it was very, I don't know if I would call that. It didn't come to mind as part of the queer community because it was. it felt much of the time like a reminder to not be queer mm. at BYU. They had to state over and over again that they supported the BYU Honor Code, mm. that we weren't allowed, we shouldn't be using the USGA as, you know, a place to find dates, <laughs> <laughs> which was devastating because I didn't even realize that I had wanted to maybe use it that way yeah. until I was told that I shouldn't do that. And then I just, the guilt just like seeped into me in it because I, I hadn't sought it out with that in mind, but... As soon as they said it, I realized like I was desperate for, I don't even know if I was desperate for dates, but I was desperate for connection to other queer people. And that reminder that we even here, even off campus, even in an unofficial club that BYU refused to recognize uh, that wasn't meeting on campus, we still had to be subject to the honor code. We still had to hide that side of ourselves, even surrounded by other queer people. My love for women is beautiful. It is not a perversion. It is a part of me. It's not a behavior. Uh, whether or not I'm actively dating a woman or not, I am still a lesbian. Whether or not I am, you know, at, at the <laughs> on the states of the Capitol waving a lesbian pride flag, or if I'm just at home, you know, making toast, I'm still a lesbian in all those moments. And it is not a behavior that I can just sometimes dip my toes into. It is, it is every part of me. And so I feel that my consent to the honor code was not informed. It was uninformed. I was told things that turned out not to be true. I don't like to say I was lied to because I feel that the people who told me these things were telling the truth as they knew it. Uh, that they were not, they were also not informed about LGBT identities and what it is actually like to um, be LGBT. They didn't understand. And so they were speaking from a position of authority to me about LGBT issues while they also did not know without having that experience themselves. And so when I agreed to live by the standards of the honor code, I was under the impression that I could just pull away from lesbianism, <laughs> that I could just be, be or at least act straight, just turn it, I could just turn it off. I could just, um, I could just live by those standards and that I would be happy and that I would be blessed and that I would be prosperous. And, uh, these things turned out not to be true. It turned out that for me living according to the honor code was an exercise in self-hate and depression and suicidal thoughts it was an exercise in repression and living according to the honor code nearly killed me twice. And so when I realized that, I realized that even though I had agreed to it originally, the information that I had now was telling me that I needed to stop, that that was the healthy choice to make. I needed to, I needed to stop.
Student perspectives like Danny's show that it's not just the prohibition on queer behavior in the honor code that causes problems for queer students at BYU, but that there's also a culture of queer phobia at the school. Another major event at BYU that demonstrates that culture happened after church authority Jeffrey R. Holland was invited to speak at an annual BYU conference. During this address, Holland quoted and endorsed advice from other church leaders encouraging students at BYU to be more militant in their beliefs about the family and of marriage being the union of a man and a woman only. He referenced muskets that early church members wielded against perceived enemies of the church, saying that he would like to hear a little more musket fire from this temple of learning. Now, Holland did caution listeners about getting too harsh in defending their beliefs, saying he hoped, quote, everyone at BYU will try to avoid language, symbols, and situations that are more divisive than unifying at the very time we want to show love for all God's children, close quote. Now, despite Holland's call for caution and love, it seems some students only heard his call for musket fire. Just a few days later, when there was a chalk protest organized by queer students and allies, where students drew messages of support for the queer student community on sidewalks and stairwells on campus, there was a queer phobic student that washed away the messages of support, replacing them with another message saying gay people go to hell. BYU did investigate the queer phobic student's behavior, calling it also against the honor code. But something bigger to consider here is why that student even felt it was all right and appropriate to remove the affirming messages and replace it with hate speech and a message that included a harmful and derogatory slur. Now, just one year after this event, the Rainbow Collective, a nonprofit that supports the BYU queer community, hosted a back-to-school pride night to welcome LGBTQ students back to school. The event was also attended by counter-protesters who shouted slurs and called queer students pedophiles and groomers. Now, allies to the collective dressed as angels tried to shield the queer students from the counter-protesters, but them being there was still a big part of what people remember about that night. Now, students continue organizing in response to anti-queer cultures and events at BYU, but the problem is that they just keep happening. I think that a lot of the the stuff we're going to be talking about on this episode is going to it's going to like trigger a lot of responses in people. Um I think that some people are going to say that because it's a private institution, they're allowed to regulate the school, right? And some people are going to say that queer students shouldn't apply to BYU. How do you feel about that statement or that opinion? Yeah, I've got a a couple thoughts. One of them is um they are allowed to do that that it's legal everything that they're doing is legal they're the allowed to you mean. the 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 BYU is allowed to regulate the students that come they're allowed to that's legal they're not breaking any laws i'm allowed to complain about it <laughs> <laughs> i'm allowed yeah. to say why i think even if it's legal it's still messed up it's still hurtful it's still something that i disagree with another thing i think they should keep in mind is um, queerness is beautiful and you will never be able to segregate it out of your life. So maybe instead of trying to push people, queer people out and control them in their bodies, maybe try to find a way to coexist in a way that doesn't repress and oppress another group. Now, comparatively, UVU might seem quite appealing for queer students, and often in Utah Valley, people tend to think of UVU as BYU's queer-friendly cousin. But the reality is far from this. Just last year in 2021, Dr. Wendy M. Nelson, the wife of the current president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Russell M. Nelson, was invited to speak as the graduation commencement speaker. Aside from the obvious bias a speaker like Nelson might have as the wife of a church authority, Nelson also has a history of making harmful remarks about the queer community. 
In a popular book of hers called Purity and Passion, she writes that queer relationships are a, quote, distortion and perversion, and says that, quote, homosexual activities break the eternal law upon which the blessings of marital intimacy are predicated. Many faculty, staff, and students protested the decision to have Nelson as the commencement speaker, saying that having her there was contradictory to UVU's slogan of welcoming students as they are, even the school's official stated policies of inclusion. Now, Jesse, another researcher for the podcast, happened to be heavily involved with some of the organizing that followed Nelson being invited to speak. So we've got them on to tell us a bit more about that experience. Hey, my name is Jesse. Um, my pronouns are they, them, and I'm a student here at UVU. Cool. Now, Jesse, Wendy Nelson was invited to speak as a 2021 commencement speaker, and I understand that you were involved in a lot of the backlash after that decision was announced. Is that correct? Yes, I was a member of the LGBTQ plus action committee here on campus, and it was primarily in that committee that we were organizing that. Organizing the response, yeah. Yeah. Why did the LGBTQ plus action community feel that it was important to respond to the decision to have Wendy Nelson as the speaker? We felt like, for one, that it affected each of us personally. We felt offended that they would have her come speak because the fact that she has publicly a homophobic stance. We just felt like it was really important to make some noise about that and make sure that those who are making the decisions of who speaks know that there are lots of us that don't feel okay about that. Inclusivity is something that UVU claims is important and we felt that we needed to urge them to align with those principles they they claim to have. So we looked at all the stuff leading up to today, but there's still a lot going down right now at both universities. So on Tuesday, October 11th, more than 100 BYU students, alumni, and community members joined a nationwide walkout organized by a student group on campus called the Black Menaces and the Religious Exemption Accountability Project called Strikeout Queerphobia. Now, the purpose of that walkout was to call for an end to the Title IX religious exemptions, those exemptions that allow, for example, BYU to discriminate against queer students and punish them for queer behavior through their honor code. Now, three really dope people at the center, Hannah and Bale, fellows at the center, and Jaden, one of our sound editors were able to make it out to the protest and talk a bit to protesters about why they were there. So what brought you here today? I'm here because I want BYU to be better than it is. Honestly, I think one of the biggest things is I think there's immense value in people who feel completely rejected being able to come and see a couple hundred people like standing with them you know because i think we deserve a safe space um as part of the community i think we are taught many things but we don't really practice anything what jesus taught so i think it's important that we we give a good example of loving each other you know being tolerant and understanding each other so i think i'm here to march or yeah, to just let other people know that we're here, that, that we love each other and that we support each other. We got their back. I'm here because I know several students who um, attend BYU who are queer and have friends and, and family, and I've seen the impact that that's had on their life. And so I thought it was important to show up here, even though I don't go to the school, because this impacts the community. 
Um, I just had some friends that posted about it, and I had heard about these things happening, so okay. I thought I'd come see what was going on. Okay, yeah, so do you have any idea what this is about? I can guess by the flags um, <laughs> and the signs, what's right. going on. Right, so how do, how do you personally feel about all this? I, I honestly don't know how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, I, as a, as a member of the church, I have fairly firm beliefs about, um, marital relationships, but I also recognize that people need to be free to act for themselves. Walked by my way up here while we were organized. We just finished a class. We're walking home. So okay. just listening in. Cool. Yeah. How do you feel about what you've seen so far? Um, it's, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're... Happy to listen, happy to hear what people have to say. Great. And it, I think it makes a lot of sense that people are unsatisfied with the experience of a lot of diverse populations, mm -hmm. um, both ethnic populations and queer populations. This kind of opportunity to have events for people where they can feel like they fit in is huge. I'm here today because I'm really passionate about um, hoping for change and pushing and advocating for change um, from queerphobia, I guess, really simply put, and um, hoping for just a, prog a progression of change through, um, you know, policy change, culture change, all that, so that we can get rid of queerphobia. I support, you know, queer issues. I think the church handles it really poorly, and I think that looks really bad on BYU. Um, and I am queer myself. Um, I'm like maybe baby gay, I'm a little bisexual-ish, and um, I think it's really important to show up for, I, I have so much privilege in, in being able to come, come here and be as out as I want to be and express myself without any of the fear or repercussions of, you know, getting in trouble with the honor code, which when I was at BYU, I didn't even really know I was gay. And so I just never dealt with that, but I had friends who did, and it was really scary. And so I know that I can come here and show up and be in support of this um, without fear. And I know that there's strength in numbers, and I just care about this cause a lot, and I know what the students are going through, and I just, I don't want them to think that they're alone or that only students are fighting for this. I wanted to show support. Um, I, like, I don't think I feel bad for leaving, transferring, but, like, there's a lot of queer kids who cannot leave BYU that need support. Like, it's just not an option for them. So I wanted to make sure that they are feeling, like, loved and supported. Okay, so we got queer students and allies organizing at BYU, organizing to claim space for themselves, and then just 10 minutes north, we got the same shit happening at UVU. So in September of this year, Mike Pence, who was Donald Trump's running mate and vice president, was invited to speak at UVU by the Gary R. Herbert Institute for Public Policy Forum. Now, obviously, this was a really divisive decision because of Pence's political background, which was full of instances, statements, and policies that many in the queer community and other marginalized communities see as being directly targeting them. As vice president, he helped pass a discriminatory ban on transgender people serving in the military and was very publicly against the reversal of the U.S. military's don't ask, don't tell policy, which prevented gay, lesbian and bisexual people from serving in the military while being out. And in 2013, while he was serving as governor of Indiana, Pence signed a bill that would jail same-sex couples that applied for marriage licenses in the state. Then in the next year, in 2014, many claimed that Pence facilitated the largest HIV outbreak ever documented in the U.S. after he eliminated test centers and needle exchanges in the state, which are two methods shown to aid heavily in the prevention of HIV spreading. 
Of course, when it was announced that he would be speaking at UVU, queer students and their allies organized a response. Specifically, the PSA, or the Progressive Student Alliance here on campus, organized a silent protest to occur outside the center where Pence would be speaking, and students assembled, holding signs in their partner's hands. Now we got the president of the PSA, Simone, to come on here really quick and share a bit about their experience organizing that event and then participating in it as a queer student themselves. Okay, so I'm Simone Anderson. I use they, her pronouns. I am a queer person born and raised in Utah, Utah County to be specific, where there's a lot of fear and wrong information about the community. What community are you talking about? The LGBT community. So I've seen where a lot of my friends were not for me having the same basic rights as other people would. Right. And of course that hurt a lot. And I found it was pertinent and very much important that I went out of my way to fight for these rights because I knew other people would not. How did how did you come into this realization that you were the one that needed to fight for your own rights rather than other people kind of doing it on your behalf? I guess I just found early on that a lot of my peers, again, a lot of people older than me, were not on my side. Okay. Especially in Utah County. So I had to keep listening to their perspective and realize that if I want to be seen as a human being, respected, and to feel comfortable in my home or in Utah, I need to go out of my way to have... To protect yourself politically, right? Yes, yes. Make sure that you're represented. Speaking of, I guess queer organizing um, on campus. I know that you guys were in charge of, or like, I guess, organized the the silent protest that was a response to Mike Pence being invited to come speak on campus. Can you tell me a little bit more about that protest? What was the purpose and maybe some of the consequences of it? Of course. So for anybody listening, Mike Pence came to UVU on September 20th. College students and most people on campus knew about a month in advance. In fact, from the conversations I've had, most of like the presidency of campus did not know he was coming until he was slated to come. Wow. So no people that actually understood the certain marginalized groups on campus knew he was coming until we started showing that we were going to protest him. Right. So we found it pertinent to go out of our way to know that even if Mike Pence is on our campus, he does not represent all of us. And he is a divisive figure that we don't think should be here. Why Why was it important, I guess, for the PSA to organize in response to Mike Pence coming to speak? Yes. So specifically, it's what we, the way we looked at it was as a narrative. You've used slogan this year as a place for you. Right. But inviting a speaker such as Mike Pence does not show that... It shows that it's a place for you if you fall into the basic demographics that Mike Pence is typically fighting for. Right. So we found that by organizing a protest, we can show some college students, people that are scared, concerned, or really nervous about Mike Pence being there, that even though he's here, he is not here uncontested. And what was your experience? I assume you were at the protest yourself, right? Not just organizing. Absolutely, yes. Okay. What was your experience actually standing there, you know, holding the signs and then watching people exit Mike Pence's speech? 
I would say it was a powerful experience. It was able to show that these individuals that decided to come to see Mike Pence, it showed them that we are here. Right. We are not unseen. One of the signs that we had there was we were here before you and we will be here after you. The idea, And on that poster was a pride flag. Yeah. And this showed the individuals that Although they're here for this temporary moment, Mike Pence is here for this temporary moment, UVU and the students here will still be here before yeah. and after. Yeah. I remember I, I actually I showed up to the protest, too, just for a little bit, like near the end. Um, and I remember like being very excited, seeing everybody that had showed up and kind of shown out and they were all, you know, holding their signs. And it was really dope. A lot of people with their partners, which was very nice to see. Um and I was excited for probably like five minutes and I was like, oh, shit, this is like this kind of sucks that we have to, you know, be here like this. Um, and that, you know, there's there's even a need for for students to feel like they need to demand space for themselves in order to feel safe on campus. Right. Yeah. Um, and I remember watching people exiting the event, I guess, like dressed out like as though they were going to like attend church or something. Um, and that was like a very clear like memory for me of like feeling like there are students here demanding safety while other students are exiting as though they've just attended like this really spectacular event. I think that was it was it was also a powerful moment for me but in different ways. This organizing and activism is happening in real time here on campus and all over in Utah Valley and not just in organizations that are explicitly advocating for queer rights. All kinds of orgs and clubs are down for the cause and most importantly, queer students on campus create safe spaces for themselves and others like them all over campus. Now our next interviewee is this real dope Latina Felix who works at the Multicultural Center and she's coming on to talk about her experience as a brand new student at UVU, exploring her queerness and puzzling out how that queerness is either welcomed or not welcomed here on campus. Hi, Felix. How are you doing? Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, Hannah. Thank you so much. It's an honor, a privilege. Why don't you start by introducing yourself and kind of giving us some background on like what you do, how you identify, and if we could get like name, pronouns, things like that. Yeah, of course. So my full name is Felix Emanuel Anderos Diaz. I am from here. I was born in Oran, Utah, but both of my parents are from Aguascalientes, Mexico. I am 18 years old. I am a freshman at UVU studying software engineering. Cool. And I go by she, her, so and I'm instead. full Latina, and I also have been transgender for about, I think, a year almost. I came out this January, and it's now October, so it's been a few months. Women in STEM. <laughs> Women in STEM. Women in STEM, <laughs> yeah. Can I ask, how do you, how does your position with, with the council help you organize, like, for queer inclusion and things like that is that something that you center in your work at all or is that something that you mostly see other people kind of organizing for on campus i think it would be like wrong for me not to because yeah intersectional identity is inevitable because not one gay lesbian transgender person is only going to experience one community and one attribute to their lives like we are yeah. multifaceted people Right, And so I think it'd be almost unfair to not have it be mm. catered towards everyone, including LGBT people. So for me, I've definitely tried to be an active voice for the LGBTQ community and my position on the council. And it's definitely been really fun to be able to integrate two parts of my identity and make it a good time. Do you feel supported in your queerness just at UVU? In all honesty, I think the most blunt answer would be no. Because it's almost 
the expectation for me to not feel comfortable. It's kind of expected for me to be an alien. And it's odd because I feel like sometimes I was expected to watch on the outskirts, but as of recently, I started to become more comfortable in understanding the fact that I will sometimes for the rest of my life be viewed as somebody who was not to be understood but that's okay and um i remember when i first came to uvu i was really happy with like a place for you and like i noticed that they were trying to advocate for inclusivity and diversity and enabling and embracing our differences right but when being here on campus it's not necessarily that people are like deliberately like transphobic to me or say like horrible things to my face it's more like the subliminals and kind of the the things that fall behind the curtain Okay, another question. What What is the the queer community like, I guess, or your queer community on campus like? Do you, do you have one? Are you a part of any sort of like queer organizations? I personally haven't had many experience um, with queer organizations here at UVU. I do have obviously like more smaller communities with my friends. And I think yeah. a majority of them stem just from the MSS, multi- Multicultural Student Services. Cause yeah. I just hang out with my friends there most of the time, and that's where we, like, do homework and just chill. But I th- there's definitely a lot of options, and it's a really huge resource that I didn't even know was available, and I'm really grateful that all students on campus are aware of the fact that, like, there's a place for them, even if on the majority and, like, the whole scale of the campus they don't feel that way. There can be one Safe center places. or one yeah. room or, like, a few friends. I don't know. Do you think that you would feel welcome in those spaces? Probably not. Hmm. Not because um not because like I'm transgender that has really nothing to do with it. I think it's more just because in all honesty those groups are most likely going to be catered for white students. queer students. Right. And while there's nothing wrong with that, I just I can't relate. I can't we're not on the same ground level in order for us to connect because while we face different struggles and we all do it's a different dialect and I think it's also just contradictory for me as well just because I feel like I'm attending something that I feel like isn't for me Hmm. that makes sense okay um that does make sense what do you think is missing like how how could you feel like it is for you that's a good question. I'm not sure what would be able to be fixed or changed yeah. because in all honesty, it's just kind of like the uh, what we're accustomed to. Yeah. And it's hard to address something that we don't realize is a problem. So I think that would probably be the first step in order to make others feel welcomed as well as to recognize the fact that sometimes we do cater towards more... Majority populations. Right. Privileged versions of perspectives well you mentioned then that you have queer friends that are with you then like at the council at at the multicultural center how do you find those people that are kind of that kind of share like that multicultural background but that are also queer that you can identify with them in these two like very specific ways how do you go about forming that community i stumble on it like pretty often i have a really close-knit group of friends right now and it all just kind of fell into place and i Mm. think being willing to find somewhere on campus to be able to indulge in and I was really big on um, participation and involving myself in my community at Provo High which is where I went to high school Mm. and I'm really grateful that it translated into college because if I wasn't 
part of the MSC, I probably wouldn't be friends with a lot of my best friends now, or at least not as close as I am. Yeah. And it's it's really fun. I'm really grateful, and I think the primary way that I have been able to find that community and those friends is being willing to be involved on campus and with my community, whether that be like the Latina community, LGBTQ, like anything, all of the above. Do you have any experiences since your since your time here, which I know has been pretty brief on campus, but experience, I guess, that you would like to share about like feeling either accepted in your queerness, whether it's in these spaces of the council, like stories that you have or maybe not feeling welcome in both your queerness and your Latinidad? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because it's an odd balance. Like I walked down the hall, for example, the L.A. Hall. Yeah. And, like, my friends, I try my best not to give them attention, but my friends, like, turn and stare at other people. I'm like, what's wrong? And they're like, those people were staring at you. Those people were laughing at you. And I was like, oh, well, what are you going to do about it? And so, like, in the same breath that I feel like I'm so belittled, I'm also so loved. So it's really interesting to play on the dichotomy of um, acceptance and hatred, especially when... It's for things that people don't understand or people don't even know. Like, I don't know. It's interesting to me that some people decide that they can hate on somebody before they even know who they are solely based on an identity. And so on campus, it's been really interesting because I found those groups and those cliques of love and acceptance. But on a wider scale, I think it's definitely not that way. And I wish it was, but I think in due time it will be. And it's a two-way street when it comes to those kinds of conversations because I have had a lot of conversations like that um, in these past few months after coming out as transgender. And I think the most important aspect of it would be having forgiveness and open-mindedness for both parties because I see a lot of... Both parties, like the people that accept you and the people that don't. For... Well, yeah, I think it was more about like having like, uh, I guess, for example, me having a conversation with somebody who doesn't or somebody Mm -hmm. who is trying to understand me or let's say like maybe misgenders me. It's it's not about blowing up on a person. It's being willing to grow with them and like explore the territory that they don't understand. Yeah. Mean people where they're at. Mm -hmm. I see that. And I've I found a lot of serendipity and all of that just because i feel like in the past few months especially with having like hispanic parents who are immigrants Mm -hmm. and them not even knowing what transgender means yeah and just being completely unaware of all of what's going on like i've came to such a good place to be able to be understanding as much as they're trying to be understanding with me how do you think that um that like the culture i guess and i'm saying the culture but i mean like you know, how does your your particular family culture and, like, your Latinidad play into the way that you explain yourself or the way that you kind of, like, describe your queerness to either your parents or even to other Latinos? Mm-hmm. So I inherently was raised Catholic, and my parents are still are Catholic. Everybody in my family is still besides me. Mm, okay. And so I think that has a lot to play into effect when it comes to how I express myself, especially when it comes to my identity, just because I was so accustomed to being ashamed of it mm, and okay. suppressing all of those kinds of feelings and i even was like part of the 
church choir like mm-hmm. if you can imagine me like oh, shit. a little transgender boy well boy then now girl uh singing on the choir and like preaching songs about jesus when mm-hmm. like in all honesty i didn't really feel accepted in those spaces and so i think it's really interesting how it, it transcribes into like my day-to-day basis and how like i perceive myself and i think yeah it's caused a lot of gender dysphoria but that's also inevitable when you are a transgender person but i think it definitely contributes to a lot of the things that make me feel not enough just because i was trained to do so yeah but it's been really beautiful learning to unlearn all of the things that i have been set to be my neutral yeah that's that's cool i think and i think it's interesting to talk about the limitations and stuff that like upbringing and stuff can put on the way we express queerness and things like that but in what ways do you feel like your Latinidad, it's like an advantage for you to express queerness in ways that maybe other people who are queer but not Latino can't do or can't mm. understand in the same ways? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I feel like I've always felt like I've had just like a flame up my butt just because I've been so <laughs> used to it. I'm so used uh-huh. to like feeling marginalized and feeling just like the weird kid, especially being, or not necessarily the weird kid, but the kid that was hard to understand just being... um mexican in a predominantly white space yeah it was just kind of enlightening to be able to relate those experiences and how i cope with that yeah to my queer mechanisms and all of that stuff so it's just really cool and i think it has been a one-up for me because i have already had experience with this kind of stuff so it doesn't affect me as much and i think while like it's not the greatest to say you have it i definitely have had grown a lot of like thick skin throughout the years through both of my intersectional identities in order to be healthy and happy and where i am today that's i i love hearing that i feel like that's that's the cool thing because you can feel stronger in one through the other and like vice versa whichever one you're going for i appreciate you so much for coming on the podcast today felix it was so nice to meet you and so nice to interview you thank you so much for coming on Yes, thank you, besitos to everyone. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You know, I think sometimes it can be a bit disheartening to hear about all the shit that keeps going down that makes queer students and other marginalized folks on campus feel unwelcome or unsafe. But those things don't just happen without a response. And queer students in Utah Valley are loud and they're brave. And communities on and off campus can be just as welcoming and compassionate to queer students as they have been threatening in the past. Now, nobody's ever going to agree on what campus should look like and who should be allowed to do what. But if we work to understand what queer phobia really is, we can work to find out how to get rid of it. So let's throw back real quick to some of those protest clips to hear what people were saying about what it all means to them. In your own words, what is queer phobia to you? I feel like I feel like a lot of it is just ignorance, you know? I think I think a lot of people, I think the administration thinks they understand, and maybe they do intellectually, like, okay, like, you know, like people are more sad when they don't get to date who they want to, or they're more sad when X, right? But um, at the end of the day, like, I think until, like, someone sits down and has, like, a conversation and they actually know, like, a gay person or a queer person or a trans person, right? I think until that happens, like, like, you are, to an extent, still ignorant. Like, you still just haven't quite understood what people are going on, what, what people are experiencing. My friend said something really important, I think, ignorance, but sometimes when you... 
I don't know, it's 2022, educate yourself and learn your ways. Like, I think it's a system that does not allow other people to... I think people are just scared of the unknown. So I think it's just that, that biases, that just that hate of the unknown because you don't, you don't really know it. So I think it's just, you're scared. The way that it feels like it's used is just anytime you hold traditional views. Okay. is how I see it used in the common parlance. I think it encompasses a lot of probably initially kind of um, like internal feelings, kind of um, things that we've been taught through um, the example of our parents or um, other people that kind of have a more cultural belief about um, queerness as a bad thing. Um, and that can be internalized and kind of come through even for those that are trying to um, to be supportive. Queer phobia um, is, I think, ignorance. Mm. You know, I, I think uh, one of the speeches they talked about, like, internalized queer phobia, that was definitely something that, like, I struggled with growing up because, like, I just didn't have any, like, role models of, like, queer individuals, like, living happily, you know what I mean? Like, so it, because of my, like, uneducated take, like, I thought it was bad, that it was wrong, you know? And then that was something I needed to change about myself. But I think that's how it is with everyone. People that, I think, have queer phobia, they just don't, they don't, like, I don't know, like, have enough, like, experience with someone who is you know, identifying as LGBTQ. Because if you did, I don't think that you could, like, hate someone who is queer because it just wouldn't make any sense it just doesn't make sense like you just have to be ignorant on the matter i don't know y'all like i said before i think understanding what queer phobia is is one of the best ways we got to learn about how to stop it and sometimes it's really just about knowing people and trying to understand because really that's all we can do you know now that sounds like it's all simple and stuff but it's hard and it's messy and it takes a long ass time Today, though, there's already community and compassion and we just got to build it out and it's not kind of cheesy but that's something that can only happen when people come together so the first question that we have is, why are you here? I'm here to support all the kids at BYU who don't feel like they're loved or welcome, and I want them to know that they are. Um, what do you think needs to change? I think the changes in the policy within the church as well as at BYU need to change to be completely open and accepting of all LGBTQ kids. What is queer phobia to you and if you have any experiences? I really believe queer phobia is just not understanding another person's heart that feels differently about their gender or their sexual orientation. And the phobia just has to do with not understanding and knowing someone. Yeah. And when you know and love someone, there's no phobia. You just love. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Enjoy your day. All right, y'all, that's all I got for you this episode. I really thought that putting it all together would go smoother this month than it did last month, but maybe just being disorganized is my personality. Either way, I had a lot of help putting it all together, so thanks again to Hannah, Jada, and Bale for getting those dope protest interviews at the Strikeout Queerphobia walkout. Thanks to Denny for helping out with research and the script, and our new researchers, Jesse and Kenna, for helping out with some of the more last-minute stuff. Thanks a lot to Sophie, our sound engineer, Jaden and Braden, our sound editors, and then my advisors at the center, Cass, Joe, and Kai, for always pulling through with all the last-minute stuff, like interview questions or, like, just emotional support, because uh, apparently I need that, like, all the time. 
Thanks to our interviewees, Danny, Jesse, Felix, and Simone for sharing their lived experiences and giving their perspective as students. And a big thanks to y'all for tuning into this episode. Now, just like last time, we got citations in the show notes in case y'all want to check out anything. Center for Social Impact is located in the Student Wellness Building on campus in SC105, right across from the Big Ballroom. We got events every Thursday, so follow us on Instagram at UVU Social Impact to find out what we got going on. Now, we release episodes on here monthly, so drop by next month and give us a listen again. I'm Hannah. And y'all were listening to Critical Mass Podcast. Take it easy.